We're going to jump into Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, and I want to start with a question. What makes someone a great person? What makes someone a great person? What is greatness? Is it being superior or personality or being successful? What makes someone great? And we're in the middle of many significant events here in the life of Christ. And in today's passage, Jesus and his disciples, they finished their missionary journey through the north part of Israel, up into Tyre and Sidon, and they've come back to their home base. And in this passage, Jesus is going to sit down and talk with his disciples about what is to come and how to prepare for it. And this is kind of a lengthy passage, but it is one conversation with one thought in it. And so we talked as elders about dividing it up, and I just wanted to bring the one thought out that is in this passage. So we're going to tackle all these verses as a chunk because they are a single conversation Jesus had with his disciples. And so let's go back and think about what the disciples have witnessed so far in the life of Christ. So the Gospel of Mark, it started out with Jesus calling 12 very ordinary men as his disciples. And think about what they have witnessed. They witnessed Jesus teaching the people with incredible authority. He did some things that have never been done in history. He healed a leper, healed a deaf man, healed a blind man, raised a little girl from the dead, told a paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, and healed him, and he got up and walked out. While he was on the boat with them, in the middle of a storm, he said, peace be still, and the storm ceased. And they said, what kind of man is this that the wind and sea obey him? He walked on the water. He healed a man with so many demons that no one could control him. And it was such an incredible miracle that everybody marveled. He fed a crowd of 4,000 people. And then he fed a crowd of 5,000 people. And Jesus asked the 12 who knew him the best, Who do you say that I am? And the disciples answered, You are the Christ the Messiah of God. And then three disciples saw Jesus transfigured into the spectacular appearance of God right there in front of them. These men, 12 men, have spent a few years now with him and they are witnessing God in front of him. So what is greatness? Greatness is defined for us in the scripture as someone who denies himself the pleasures of this world for the purpose of serving God. Go back a chapter to chapter 8, picking up in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now turn to the chapter in front of us in chapter 10, picking up in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Greatness is in serving, and God calls each of us to serve, not to be great. And these disciples are going to be the leaders of the church, and they're going to take the gospel to the world, and we are invited to listen into a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as he instructs them about the path to greatness. So we could call this preparing the disciples for leadership. I'm going to call this and give this passage the title, The Path to Greatness. So let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the instruction given us. Grant us to understand the teaching of Jesus and understand what it is to humble ourselves and live lives of service to you. Come meet with us and teach us out of your word now. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 30 and 30 through 32 and I'm going to call these the humility of Jesus. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask. So Jesus is seeking a time of isolation with his disciples so that he can give them some instruction and confront their ignorance about what is to come. And this is insider information that Jesus has already given and will be giving a few times. So let's make a few points of, this, of his instruction to them as we are two and a half years into the ministry of Jesus. And this instruction shows us his humility and his humanity as he starts with the Son of Man. He set aside his crown to take up a cross. He was born under the law. He was born into a world of sin. And God came as one of us. And he came for the specific purpose. And his instruction says... And shows his sovereignty over his death. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Jesus was not a victim. He was not a martyr. Instead, he voluntarily laid down his life. And it's presented as a certainty. They will kill him. These things will happen. There is no turning back. We will go to Jerusalem. And he tells them the victory of his death. After that, he is killed. He will rise the third day. This instruction is not understood by the disciples, and they were afraid to ask. What is hard to understand about the words, I am going to be killed and rise from the dead on the third day? That is pretty blatant. They weren't illiterate. What clouded their thinking was the popularity Jesus was having among the people. The multitudes have been around him continuously and this popularity of Jesus has been front and center and is the reason for what is coming up next. And this instruction has been repeated multiple times back in chapter 8, a couple times in 9, and we'll see it again in the next chapter. And we move on to the pride of the disciples in verses 33 through 41. 
the pride of the disciples. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when they had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us, and we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which can do a miracle in my name can speak, that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And we start with a location being given to us here as they come back to Capernaum and enter the house. And most probably this is Peter's house where they have been several times before. If you go back to Mark chapter 2 verse 1, it says they entered to Capernaum and went into the house. So we're back at Peter's house. And these disciples have seen the popularity of Jesus among the people. The very big crowds as he healed everyone, taught them effectively, confronted evil, saw the transfiguration. Now Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they are expecting that Jesus will be anointed as king. And he will be appointed as a long-awaited Messiah over the country. And along with his reign, these 12 men are expecting that they are going to be second in command in charge of the country underneath the Messiah. And this is going to be quite the spectacular event. These disciples have been arguing with each other about what part of the country they want to rule over. I want to be in charge of Capernaum. It's my hometown. Well, I want to be in Jerusalem. And another one says, no, Jerusalem's going to be mine. Jesus is going to be king there, and I want to sit by his right hand. Who's going to be in charge of what part of the country under the kingdom of Jesus? Um, what were you guys arguing about? But in embarrassment, they kept silent and didn't answer him. And we see here that pride destroys unity in verse 34. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves. The disciples are focusing on their own personal glory. Who's going to be the greatest? And they want to receive the glory for themselves. And in fact, Luke tells us that this argument among the disciples continued all the way up until the night before his death. They were not working together for God's glory. They were arguing with each other about personal glory. As Paul instructs us in Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that, that's what they were not doing. And then we see that pride forfeits honor in verse 35. And he sat down and called them, if anyone desires to be first, the same shall be last and servant of all. It is so counterintuitive to us, 
to our sinful natures that humility comes before honor. As Jesus emptied himself by taking on him the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. Philippians 2.7 tells us, and then pride puts ourself in God's place in verses 36 and 37. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. And Jesus takes a child and uses this child as an object lesson to teach them that the way we receive and treat children is a demonstration of how we receive God. Most of these disciples at this time are probably teenagers. They're young men. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he doesn't confront their arrogance. Notice what he does. He brings a child in front of them. And think about it when you were 18 or 19 or 20. How do you look at little children, five or six-year-olds? Most 18-year-olds think they know everything. And Jesus brings in a child and points them to humility. If you receive a child in my name, you're receiving me. You are, you are arguing about who's going to be the greatest and you won't humble yourself for a child? You don't understand authority. We have a relative, my wife's uncle, who is the most, has the most fascinating stories. And everyone always enjoys being with him. And he could have made a lot of money in his career. But he didn't pursue a mighty career. There's one characteristic about him that he's had for as long as I've known him. Very consistent. He is always seeking out the lonely child or the little guys and taking an interest in them and making investments in them. And then we see here that pride is arrogant. Is that redundant? I don't know. Pride is arrogant in verses 38 and 39. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed us, not us, and we forbade him, because he followed not us. The trap before them is that when we are zealous for the truth and we're correct, that we can be narrower than the truth, as the di disciples are becoming intolerant of others. And John speaks up and has a he has a sense of accomplishment in his statement here. Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and since he doesn't follow us, we stopped him. We have applied the truth you've been teaching us. And this appears to be a real event that had happened, as multiple demons were cast out. And there's something here that should jump out to us personally as it really opens the story. What did he not do? What, what did this person do? He followed not us. He doesn't say he didn't follow the Lord. He says he didn't follow us, the disciples. Now turn back to verse 18 and earlier in this chapter. A father brought his son to the disciples with a demon and asked the disciples to cast it out. 
And they were not able. And these disciples were not able to serve the Lord in this situation. And then they met a man who was able to accomplish the same difficult task in a similar situation. And their pride was probably wounded. They could have and should have cast out the demon but could not. And they were missing the prayer and faith in their situation that someone else possessed. And their pride has been stung because they were inept and powerless to help this person. And now we read about an incident where they met someone who was competent through God's power to meet the need of the day. It's entirely reasonable to deduce that the disciples were a little bit jealous. Someone else is succeeding where we have failed and we tried to shut him down. If we cannot, then nobody else should. And Jesus rejects their rejection. Do not hinder him. Do not stop him. And Jesus had no sympathy towards their exclusiveness and prideful superiority. And then we see humility rewarded in verses 39 to 41. Now comes the explanation in three parts. So look in verse 39, beginning with the word for. For there is no man which shall do a reward in my name that can speak, that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Jesus is saying, don't reject this person that I'm going to be rewarding. Since you disciples have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest, do you think you are the only people who will receive a reward in my kingdom? The person who gives you a cup of water in my name will also share in your reward. And he continues to bring the thought of humility into their interaction with other people. You may be the to chosen twelve, but you're not above other people. Anyone who helps you serve the Lord will also be rewarded. And the power to serve God is not a monopoly owned by just these disciples or a single class of believers. And he gives two reasons for humility towards each other. First, there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. And second, he that is not against us is on our part. And Paul wrote in Philippians about some of this rivalry in Philippians 1.15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that I, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Christ proclaimed. And let's turn now to the last section, 42 through 50. And I'm going to call these verses the path to greatness. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck, and he were cast in the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, 
into a fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. You disciples have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and you want to be rulers in my kingdom, and yet you can't conquer the pride and sin in your own life. You want to be rulers and control other people, but you can't even conquer the sin in your own life. And again, Jesus brings the focus on repentance and sanctification in the lives of these disciples. First, in that of love towards the weak, specifically children that are a part of God's family. It is better to die a horrible death by drowning than to cause a child who is God's child to sin. In the negative sense, we should examine ourselves to make sure we're not causing other people to sin. Each of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, Romans 14, 12 through 13. And in the positive sense, I should examine myself to make sure I am stimulating others to righteousness. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. And then he goes on and brings in the thought of purity. So the second part here is that of purity. If your hand or foot or eye causes you to sin, it is better for you to cut it off and be lame in this life than to be thrown in hell. How many sins does it take for your hand to offend you? Maybe 10? Maybe 20? No, it's one sin. One sin is all that it takes to offend. As God's children, we need to realize that playing with sin and the smallest indulgence in this life is like going over Niagara Falls. If you were to go over Niagara Falls, how do you go backwards? How do you turn it off? Niagara Falls has 700,000 gallons that go over the edge every second. And when the water hits the bottom of the falls, it's going 68 miles an hour. How do you keep from going over the Niagara Falls of temptation? I need to cut off temptation when the thought first enters my mind. We have a duty to kill sin, to attack sin, to cut it off, not to nourish it, not to cherish it, not to secretly love it, not to tolerate it, but to terminate it and destroy it because it is better it is better to lose our hand foot or eye than to be thrown into hell scripture is very clear about our responsibility towards sin in colossians 3 5 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you, want, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must all put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Romans 8.2 tells us that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Jesus, from the law of sin and death. God's children have God working in their lives. Picking up in verse uh, 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Is this a call for us to literally remove our bodily parts? If so, all of us, every one of us, would be missing two eyes, two hands, and two feet. And we would still have a mind that sins. The key words here is, it is better, repeated four times. It is better to take my hand and cut it off without anesthesia, which is a horrible thought, than it would be to be suffering eternally in hell. This is a call for us to repent. To continually be turning in the direction of our life towards God and away from sin. These disciples are going to heaven, and yet Jesus tells them it is better to cut off your hand to be thrown, than to be thrown into hellfire. He is bringing the fear of God into their lives as they argue about who is going to be greater. In John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, he wrote, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Our encouragement is to attack sin, to be on the offensive by pursuing righteous behavior. How do we attack pride? What weakens pride? What weakens it is when we grow in humility. Instead of focusing on not being proud, we need to purposefully focus on humility and volunteer to do that which nobody wants to do. Purposefully humble ourselves, like cleaning the bathrooms in your house, and not be disappointed when we can't waste our time on ourselves. What weakens anger? Pursuing gentleness. What weakens irritability? Growing in patience and trust. What weakens lust? Growing in contentment and gratitude. There was something that happened to me as a young parent many years ago that really helped me understand focusing the battle on the correct things. When one of our children was about two or maybe younger, there was a big mess that involved a full trash can in the kitchen and all kinds of food scraps, and it was just a bad deal. It probably happened in your house. I'm sure you've all seen it. And as I looked at this pile and was tempted to bring the focus with this child on this mess, messes are bad, God taught me something that I should not bring any attention at all to the wrong behavior, but turn the focus on correct behavior. 
and instruct the child to do what is correct. Child, the time has come to learn to be responsible and clean up the messes you make. And it was a lot of work that day for a two-year-old to learn to clean up after himself, and I don't think we talked any about the mess, but instead about being responsible and doing what is right. Now look here at verses 44, 46, and 48. They are a quote from the last verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And we should give a note here that these three verses are identical and they're in the King James, but in the ESV, verses 44 and 46 are omitted, and it only gives us 48, stating that 44 and 46 are not found in the older original manuscripts. I, I'm not going to pass any judgment on their call. That's the call they made, and, and I'll just leave it at that. This statement, where the worm shall not die and the fire is not quenched, is a really vivid picture of hell. For those people who lived at that day in Jerusalem, outside of the city of Jerusalem was the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was where the city threw all their trash. And this trash heap was an extremely corrupt place and the fire burned day and night. And there were plenty of worms in that place. And it was one of the most appalling places that the Jews we're acquainted with and it's a little picture of the future punishment of the wicked in hell. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book in the year 1654 and the title of it is The Evil of Evils and he makes the point that it's a very evil choice to choose sin rather than affliction. Look at Hebrews 11. The servants of God throughout history have suffered great affliction rather than commit the smallest sin and they embrace torture rather than embracing sin. So I recommend those books to you. John Owen's Mortification of Sin, Jeremiah Burroughs' The Evil of Evils. And as we look at, at uh, conquering sin, we're given the biography of a man in the Bible and he's introduced to us with two details. Two things are told about him. And his life is an example for us of the benefit of affliction instead of sin. There, is a, there was a man in the name of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Is that true of us? Do we fear God? Do we turn away from evil? Jesus is making the point here that my sin is my problem. If I sin, cut it off. It doesn't matter that we live in a world with sin all around us. My sin is my problem. My inner lawyer wants to justify myself because of society and all the other people around me that do all the same things. My sin is not excused because somebody else did the same thing. My sin is my problem. I am the sinner. I cannot blame other people. There are no valid excuses 
for God's children to continue in sin. So are we serious in this battle to put to death our sinful desires? Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24 We should not exchange the sinful pleasures of this world to gain eternal suffering where the worms do not die and the fire is eternal. The worm, speaking of the conscience, where those in hell remember every time they rejected the chance to move away from sin and towards Jesus. Our conscience reminds us of our need for a savior. In hell, the conscience is like that worm that keeps reminding you of the chances you had to flee sin and turn from Christ. It's drilling in your thoughts. You had a chance. You had the chance. You had the chance. You had the chance. I should have turned to Christ. I should have stopped sinning. Do God's people end in hell? No, they don't. But Jesus warns us not to give up the battle. And his warnings are his precious gifts to us. He warns us against the dangers of sin. Thank God we don't have to go through this battle alone, but he grants us his Holy Spirit, a new heart to serve him. Today, people take sin so very lightly, and we should not soften the message of Christ. We need to fear the wrath of God more than we fear missing out on the pleasures of this world. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, and let's just read a passage about resisting temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read the first 14 verses of this chapter. It's just a great reminder to us that the battles we face have been faced by everybody who's lived before us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we should not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened... To them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages are come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also pride provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. May the Lord make each one of us victors in this conflict. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may at the proper time exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to desire, to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 1 Peter 5, 5 and following. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thirdly, here in this section, I want to call, bring attention to the disciples are being called to sacrifice and obedience. And verses 49 and 50 have been called the most perplexing verses in the Gospels. They have no parallel in the New Testament. And there's been offered no less than 12 different interpretations of these two verses. J.C. Ryle, the commentator, wrote after detailing all the opinions, he says, quote, I offer no opinion and make no comment on any of the above views. My objections, which might be made against every one of them, are neither few nor small. Whether these objections are insuperable or not is a point on which learned theologians differ widely, and in conclusion, will perhaps never be obtained until the Lord appears. My own conviction is we must wait for more light and regard the text as present as one of the deep things of God, end quote. Albert Barnes wrote, perhaps no passage in the New Testament has given more perplexity to commentators than this, and it may now be impossible to fix its precise meaning, end quote. What's so difficult about these two verses? Part of the difficulty is, who is everyone? What is the salt? What is this fire? What is it to have the salt in yourselves? I'll give you three possible interpretations for everyone. Option one would be, it looks back to the previous verses and refers to everyone who is cast into hell. Option two is, Everyone is everyone who does not go to hell. Salt is good and have salt in yourselves. In this option, salt cannot refer to hell, but, and many commentators take this opinion that everyone is referring to every believer. A third option is that, as verse 49 says, salted with fire refers to the trials and that everyone are the disciples. I'm going to give you an opinion, and it is just strictly that. I'm going to take it in the context of what Jesus is teaching here. In verse 40, he says, You, yourselves, and one another, and these pronouns are talking about the disciples. Verse 50, have salt in yourselves. In 49, could mean that every one of you disciples will be salted with fire. None of you are going to escape the trials that will come. You've been arguing with each other. Who's going to be the greatest? There's no need to argue with each other about greatness because you're not each other's enemies. Your real enemy is coming to try to destroy all of you with the fire of trials. And salt was an important part of offering sacrifices. In Leviticus, 
2.13 states, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And Numbers 18.19 says that they were to offer salt. Salt is a covenant. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord, you and your offspring with you. And the covenant of salt in sacrifices was representative of the covenant of peace. You disciples will be given your lies as an offering to God. And you need to prepare yourselves by rejecting pride and ambition and contention so that you are an acceptable offering to God. Salt yourselves as a preservative to keep sin away and have peace with each other by avoiding contention and quarreling and seeking to be the greatest. But instead, humble yourselves to seek each other's welfare so that you can serve the Lord together. This passage started out with the disciples seeking greatness and the pride of life. And I want to close with a passage about what we should pursue. Out of 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Let us therefore lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the instruction and the teaching and grant that we would see our lives in service to you, that you would grant us victory against the distractions of this world that we would serve you in all things thank you for your working in our lives and ask that we would um, have victory in this battle of sin and that we would um, again tomorrow not grow weary in the battle and that we would seek Christ in all things in your name amen